When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. But we know nonsense on stilts when we see it. Four. Sensible hugging, uh, subject to the usual terms and conditions. Three. Surgery saying, oh, you need a blood test. Uh, you can go and buy the piece of kit from Amazon. They're 40 quid. I mean, it, to me, that's a total dereliction of duty of care. Two. Right, go on then. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Keir Starmer lacks a compelling economic message. The Labour leader is enthralled to the woke left. Who says so? No, not Alison Pearson, our revered Planet Normal co-pilot, <laughs> though that's what she thinks. It was actually Tony Blair the only Labour Prime Minister to have won a general election majority born in the last hundred years, speaking after last week's flurry of elections. On this week's Planet Normal, we'll be discussing the upcoming public inquiry into the government's handling of the COVID pandemic, confirmed by the Prime Minister this week, and in particular, the role played by GPs. But first, co-pilot, we've been talking a lot, haven't we, about last week's elections, analysing the fallout from what Rod Little says we're not allowed to call Super Thursday, and last week's disastrous Hartlepool by-election results. In your latest Telegraph column, what did you mean when you said Labour seems to despise the very people it came into existence to protect? Oh, goodness, co-pilot. Uh, now, before we get stuck into the um, the dustbin <laughs> of history where the Labour Party and Sakir are soon to be consigned, we're coming up now for the week when we can have sensible hugging. So I hope you're ready. I'm ready. Brace, brace. Brace, brace. A cautious cuddle, but not face to face. So we're going to have to do um, back to back. Because we've all been schooled by the BBC <laughs> on how to hug, haven't we? <laughs> Talk about the nanny state. It's actually appeared before our eyes. Sensible hugging, subject to the usual terms and conditions. But I think one of my favourite things of the week, Liam, is, you know, all the countries we're now allowed to visit for our holidays on the green list. And I thought you and I could go to South Sandwich. Are you ready for this? South Sandwich is a British overseas territory in the Southern Atlantic Ocean, population 30, a remote and inhospitable collection of islands. Now, this is the best bit. You're going to love this. Remember, this is one of the few places we're allowed to go on holiday. There are no scheduled flights or ferries to and from the territory. So you actually 
We can go to South Sandwich, but you can't get there because there's no planes and there's no ferries. Uh, anyway, now coming on to the um, absolute evisceration of the Labour Party last week, which I, ha- I must say had a high amusement factor, and particularly after your lovely interview with Rod. I, you are normally our resident nerd, but I'm going to out-nerd you now. So It's a Velva moment. <laughs> Thank you. It's Velva and Shaggy. Here she goes. In the Mitchum and Morden by-election of 1982 it was a rare example of a governing party gaining a seat in a by-election and that was the Falklands effect and I think that was among the last instances of a, a ruling government pulling off what the Tories have just pulled off uh, Hartlepool and it, it is amazing Liam isn't it if you think about it the Tories have been in power for 11 years it's the incumbent government and the opposition cannot even hold on after 11 years of Tory government to what should be a safe Labour seat and I think it all bets are off now I mean do you think a Keir Starmer can survive you know a bigger existential question can the Labour Party survive? Well, co-pilot Nerdville, <laughs> the last time a government actually won a by-election was in 2017 in Copeland. But we'll put that to one side because Mitchum and Morchcombe was the last time before that. So, uh, right. Oh, OK. But, but anyway. Oh, I knew um, you'd get back at me. Honestly, <laughs> I can't teach you. I can't, I'm going to start speaking in Welsh in a minute. You know, it's just I can't teach you anything. I thought <laughs> you'd be impressed. <laughs> Right, go on then. Go on, Labour Party. Is that 53 letters? I think it is, isn't it? It's the longest place name in Britain. It was an astonishing result. Also, in the same part of the world was the re-election of Ben Houchen, who we've had on Planet Normal, yeah. the Tees Valley Mayor, who got 72% of the vote. I know. In what is, you know, typically very much a red wall part of the country. And I think on the one hand, it shows the Tory party now have become the natural choice of the working class, at least for now. That could change. And Labour, as you said yourself, it seems to have really lost touch with its traditional voters who feel over many years now that they've been taken for granted. And it's partly a Brexit thing. You hear it again and again and again Mm. when you travel in the northeast, the northwest of England, in the Midlands, people feeling that their vote for Brexit was taken for granted and actually thrown back in their face by the very people who are now leading the Labour Party, not least Keir Starmer. But it's also the sense that the Conservatives, whatever their other faults, whatever they've been doing in terms of buying expensive wallpaper and infighting at Downing Street and all the ferrets in the sack stuff that we saw in the run-up to this by-election and Super Thursday in general, it shows that A lot of voters now feel that the Labour Party is thinking too much about very, very marginal issues, important to some people, important to the people concerned about identity politics, about transsexuality, uh, about decolonising the curriculum. This stuff is just not mainstream at all. And for most people, phrases like calling out and gaslighting and all this ridiculous woke language it doesn't only feel irrelevant to them, it actually really annoys them that people who they're paying through their taxes to oppose the government and to drive our body politic forward are wasting their time on issues that really, for many people, should be banished to student politics. 
think that's absolutely right. I mean, what strikes me, Liam, is just the furthest north that Keir Starmer's comfortable in is Camden. You know, I mean, that's North <laughs> London, isn't it? And, I don't know, there's some nice pubs in Enfield. <laughs> but I think it's just got this sort of cloth cap, miserablest view of the north, which you've, you know, you were up there recently, weren't you, filming a documentary? The last time I were up, was up there. People know how to enjoy themselves. I'm absolutely convinced the northern working class are better at having a good time than the sort of, you know, stuck up southern middle classes, obviously, to who, to which I belong. But anyway, you know, and I think people in Hartlepool, people in Doncaster, people in Castleford, what do they want? They want a nice house. They want the kids to go to a good school. They want to be able to go to their GP. We'll come on to that later. They want to be able to afford a couple of nice holidays a year. So Keir Starmer, when he went up to Hartlepool, you know, there he is in the local food bank very worthy, undoubtedly, you know, virtuous and so on. But Boris was there with a sort of giant inflatable Boris <laughs> looking like, you know, we can we can bounce back. This is great. Actually, we haven't got a giant inflatable Halligan yet, but I think that's coming when you join GB <coughs> News, isn't it? Keir Starmer just looks like such a miserable man. As long man. as it's a bit more flattering than that Donald Trump one, <laughs> <laughs> orange blimp. That Sadiq Khan sponsored when Trump <laughs> yes, came yes. to the UK. Yes. I mean, if you if you look, if we come back, not to be too Velma again with you today, but they're saying now that basically the, the chances of the Tories losing the next election are basically non-existent. Um, there was some survey this week that if a general election was held this very week, Boris would get a 36-seat majority. And we've just been through, you know, one of the biggest sort of shocks in our national life. And, and Matthew Goodwin, who another marvellous Planet Normal guest we had on a few, uh, few weeks ago. The Professor of Politics at Kent University. That's right. And Matthew said this week that Labour has to win 125 more seats to win an, all right, an outright majority. Well, you know... Which is the biggest swing since Clement Attlee, I think he said. Well, I don't think Keir Starmer in the present state could win a seat in Dunelm if they were actually giving them away in the sale. You know, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. So he's had this reshuffle, which has caused even more kind of uproar because there's such a closed shop, aren't they? So Angela Rader was sacked as the chairman of the Labour Party who was in charge of the disastrous campaign. But of course, under Labour Party rules, Angela Rayner is also the deputy leader and cannot be unseated from that position. So his hands are tied. And I don't know what you think, Liam, but I do, it just makes you laugh. So Annalise Dodds was replaced by Rachel Reeve, another person you've barely heard of. So it's, you know, hold the back page. Yeah, I genuinely think we're at this extraordinary point in our history where we need an opposition. You and I have said this before. You know, I'm a broad supporter of the government, but not uncritically. And I feel that people like us, I've just done talk radio with Mike Graham. We are the opposition. This is how badly we've sunk, isn't it? That it's journalism that's providing the opposition because the Labour Party has been utterly useless. We desperately need an opposition. I um, all for a Labour Party that is visibly capable of governing well. Because unless you have that, the Tories get complacent, they get moribund, they start not listening, you get corruption mm. in the ranks. And this is a problem. We've got a situation where the opposition is completely on its knees in terms of electoral outcomes. Yeah, there was a success in Wales, which we should mention, there are some successes in some of the mayoral uh, elections, though not the really eye-catching ones. Sadiq Khan 
one in London, but mm. Sean Bailey, who also deserves an honorary mention, he did well, didn't ran he? in very close. In the, it was 55-45 on second preferences, which is far, far better than a lot of Sean Bailey's fellow Conservatives and certainly the apparatchiks at central office thought he would do. It makes you wonder if the Tories had really got behind Sean Bailey and they were always a bit reticent about his candidature. He could have come really close to giving Sadiq Khan a proper scare. But it's not right when the opposition is so weak at this stage in the electoral cycle, mid-term, when they should be way ahead in the polls, of course. And it isn't just you and me saying this, though we do want that to happen. We want a strong Labour Party. It's even Tony Blair. I mean, he's written an incredible article this week in the aftermath of Super Thursday. And he said that, as I said in the intro, Starmer lacks a compelling economic message. And he says, under the current path, under the current Labour leader, Labour is heading for an inevitable and possibly cataclysmic disaster. And Labour, says Blair, needs an electric shock. Now, of course, you and I were very much around active journalists when Blair was in his zenith. I was a political correspondent and the the guy got a lot wrong. But as Peter Mandelson says, if you look back at the last Labour elections, you know, in a, in a very, very powerful line, it's lose, 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 lose. win, yeah. win, win, lose, 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 lose. Labour have lost the last four general elections in a row. Something has to change. They cannot win if they keep following this identity politics stuff. They have to track to the centre ground. They have to move more towards where Blair and Mandelson were in their heyday if they're going to have any chance of governing, if they want to govern, Alison. And this is my concern, that the people at the top of the Labour Party, they're basically professional oppositionists that don't think they've actually got the metal to govern. And if that is the case, they need to get out of the way and make way for an opposition that does feel it's got what it takes to govern. That's absolutely right. And I was sort of truffling around in the archives just looking because I was That's checking. That's a nice verb, truffling around. <laughs> truffling around. With your snout. With my snout. <laughs> at the base of trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Google anyway. But looking at the Labour seats that, you know, could well topple if there was a general election and Ed Miliband in Doncaster North got a majority of about 2,300. Yvette Cooper, Ed Balls' wife, I mean, she actually, for my money, is one of their saner and more impressive oh, politicians. Very smart woman. Very, very smart, smart woman. Very, you know, why isn't but, she on the why, front bench? Yeah, why isn't, well, why isn't she leading the crazy. party? She's Absolutely really crazy. smart woman. Who You know, I would trust Yvette Cooper to be a competent chancellor. I yeah. have my differences with her, but she'd do a decent job. And if she was shadow chancellor, she would give... Rishi Sunak a run for his money. Absolutely. I'll part company with you a little bit. I do think Rachel Reeves is a, a, a competent and economically literate person. She used to work at the Bank of England. But the point is, she hasn't yet got a, the sort of profile you need to become an effective shadow chancellor. Perhaps she'll gain that over the next few 
months to come. I was just making a cheap joke, you know, you know me. But but just coming back to that, so Vet Cooper, tiny majority in Normanton Castleford, so that she could easily be swept away. Many of their most impressive people aren't on the front benches because they're Blairites. So of course they can't be on the front benches. We have got a, another a by-election coming up because Tracy Braben, who's the MP for Batley and Spens, she's just won the uh, to be become the mayor of West Yorkshire. Now there's a you know there's a lot of fuss about will Batley and Spens fall to the Conservatives. I don't think it will because you'll remember Liam that Tracy Braben disgracefully. When that teacher at Batley Grammar School was suspended for giving a lesson in which he mentioned the Prophet Muhammad, apparently with the cooperation of of other teachers and with students as well, she, of course, sort of Tracy lambed in and said how disgraceful, etc., etc. Because, of course, Labour has got these uh, huge Muslim client groups in that part of the world. And it's very unlikely that a Conservative will win in that area because what Labour has been doing is it plays very well and calculatedly to ethnic minority groups, which it loves, you know, Labour loves a victim, as I said in my column this morning, but doing less and less for their traditional client group of the white working class. But I actually, Liam, this is, was actually very poignant because I looked at that, you know, that Richard Bergen guy, God knows what he is, but an absolute dope of the first water who's on the Labour front bench. 10 out of 10, if you can name what job he's got. But I look back at, I think, um, Richard Bergen is MP for Leeds East. And if you go back through the history of that constituency, absolutely remarkable Merlin Rees, Dennis Healy, oh. Hugh Gateskill. You're just going back Huge. to the... Huge. Absolutely. And you look at those giants from Labour. Absolutely. You know, Dennis yeah. Healy served with distinction in World War Two. But just very quickly, coming back to that point you made about Tony Blair, this astonishing piece in The New Statesman, not only talking about why Labour needs an electric shock, making a vital point that we've made so many times on Planet Normal about the woke left. And Blair says, a progressive party seeking power, which looks askance at the likes of Trevor Phillips, Sarah Khan or JK Rowling, is not going to win. He says, people are so suspicious that behind the agenda of many of the culture warriors on the left lies an ideology they find alien and extreme. Defund the police, Blair said may be the left's most damaging political slogan since the dictatorship of the proletariat. I will never vote for a Labour Party which has two leaders, a leader and a deputy leader, who took the knee to the Black Lives Matter movement after it was rampaging through central London, smashing statues. And I imagine that myself and millions of normal people who might have voted Labour in the past, might well have considered it, are not going to vote for people who are on the side of criminals. It's a huge intervention by Blair and the Labour high command will you know, sniff loudly at each other but I think when they're on their own and they're laying in bed looking at the ceiling, at least the ones with brains will realise that the former Prime Minister, whatever may you may think of him, you know, he didn't win three general elections because he didn't understand <laughs> politics. He totally <laughs> understands politics yeah, to his fingertips and he totally understands what it takes to win elections. And you have to doff your cap to him for that at least. But it's going to be very, very difficult for them to win an election until they start making headway in Scotland as well, which is another thing that we should talk about from Super Thursday. I 
very much want the union to stay together, the union of Scotland uh, and England and Wales. I do think that Boris has to stand firm. Nicola Sturgeon did not get uh, a majority in the Scottish Parliament. The vote in terms of votes cast for pro-independence and anti-independence parties was split right down the middle. And it's not right for her to claim, as she does, that every vote for an SNP candidate is a vote for independence. And she was saying herself in the three to four weeks ahead of the most recent Scottish parliamentary elections that you should vote for her even if you don't want independence, but if you want her to carry on being in charge of the COVID pandemic and all the rest of it. Also, if you look at polls of the Green Party in Scotland coming up on the rail, of course, who she claims are all pro-independence people, half the people who vote Green are anti-independence. So you can't just top these Mm. votes up. And it is worth saying again and again that in 2014, Sturgeon, Alex Salmond, who disappeared without a trace, I think it's probably the end of his political career, though you can never completely write him off. In 2014, the top brass of the SNP said again and again and again, this is it for a generation. And then as soon as they lost, the wording changed. Ah, we meant a political generation, i.e. a change of leader, which I thought was extremely mealy-mouthed. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Last week we interviewed Rod Little, the fearless, sharp as a tax spectator writer. And you can catch up with that interview and any of our other 50 previous guests on the Planet Normal Archive. This week, Alison, a very different kind of stairway has climbed aboard our Planet Normal rocket. Well, Liam, you know we've been majoring on this can we get access to our GP story. And I wrote about it last week in The Telegraph, and obviously we talked about it on the podcast. And I must say, in my journalistic career, I've seldom had such an overwhelming reaction from readers and listeners. It's literally thousands. I can't even get through them, and they're they're resounding in my head the whole time. And the inspiration for this, really, was you'll remember that a guy called Nick Stokes wrote several months ago to Planet Normal. And Nick had been the former chair of a major NHS trust. So he had very interesting and damning things to say about the NHS turning into the COVID only health service. And then Nick wrote subsequently a few weeks later, little did he know that he and his wife, Joy, his wife of 46 years, were going to be caught up in that nightmare of the NHS becoming a COVID only service. And Joy, who had had breast cancer back in 2006, but had made an extremely good recovery. Joy was a a PE teacher, a golfer, a dog walker, massively fit, dynamic lady, a huge pillar of the community 
community in their village. But sadly, um, Joy had had more and more pain in her leg and her hip, and they had been trying to access their GP practice as thousands, millions of British people have been trying to do. And they were being fobbed off, told to have a virtual physio session. Joy was sent exercises to do. By this time, she was in agony. And finally, by the time Nick stormed the practice demanding painkillers, Joy was finally allowed an x-ray. She'd been told by the receptionist that she wasn't in an emergency, but the cancer had swept through her by this stage and she was unable to receive any cancer treatment because it was all palliative care from then. So uh, Joy died just over three weeks ago and Nick has brilliantly, I think, wanted to do something to to justify Joy's life and the way she died. And so he so wonderfully has agreed to speak to Planet Normal this week to tell their story and everything he's deduced from it, this terrible, painful experience he's been through and the lessons that we should be learning from Joy's death. So I asked Nick to talk us through, starting with the beginning of Joy's and his story. The pains got a bit worse when it got to about September um, and we sought um, some action from the GPs um, and struggled to get any real response. The assumption they were taking was it was simply arthritis. They didn't want to see Joy um, or any conversation we had was telephone. Um, They then uh, suggested that um, perhaps we might like to refer ourselves to the um, uh, the physiotherapy team in the county. Um, they wouldn't either come out and visit. Uh, all they did was have a telephone contact and provided exercises. Joy reported that the exercises weren't having any effect. So they did say perhaps you ought to have an x-ray. Um, and in the meantime, we also went privately to physio and also um, aromatherapy activity to try and get some solution and that didn't have any effect either. So when it got to around about the end of October, we had letters from both the physio and the uh, private people to say that she needed to have an x-ray or scan. They were provided to the GP surgery, but nothing happened for three weeks. Eventually, Joy chased them and spoke to a locum who said you don't have a need you don't have any need to have an x-ray but I'll sort you out a blood test and that was towards the end of November that never happened we carried on trying to get some treatment um, but obviously we were now in lockdown again and when it got into towards Christmas her pains got worse to the point that um, she was almost immobile she used to play golf. We've got a golden retriever, so she used to walk the dog. She was driving a car, but she couldn't do any of those things by Christmas. So we eventually, her pain level became such that I rang the head GP and managed to eventually get through and demanded some painkillers. And he finally agreed at that point that he perhaps he ought to organise an x-ray, uh, which happened on the 5th of January. Three days later, we had a phone call from the GP surgery saying, you better come in. The GP would like to see you. So we both went in and had an hour with him um, when it was absolutely clear that he was embarrassed that he not progressed things earlier because he said it's not arthritis. There appears to be some suspicious activity going on. You need blood tests urgently. 
Um, we were told that, that was organised three days later, and literally the same day we had that blood test. The surgery rang and said, take your wife straight to the hospital. She's got very high calcium levels, which are very dangerous, and she needs urgent treatment. Then the hospital treatment, which basically lasted for just under three months, but was never got to the point where she actually was able to have the appropriate cancer treatment because the cancer was spreading so quickly that she wasn't strong enough to cope with the treatment that was being identified. Going back to that period, I know you've said to me that Joy was trying to contact the GP you know, at least every fortnight for about three months. What what, what was the nature of that? Was that this uh, email contact? Was it filling in forms? That was phoning the GP surgery at the times when one was meant to do so. So basically, it's, it's a practice that has a system where you phone, you can make an appointment with a telephone contact with a GP several weeks ahead. But they then say, if it's urgent, you could ring us at eight in the morning or two in the afternoon, and we'll see if we can fit you in on that day. And inevitably, when you ring, that is those times, you're number six in the queue or whatever. And by the time you get through, they say, oh, there's no there's no um, vacant slots left. You were told that, that it wasn't an emergency and therefore didn't merit a scan. Is that right? Uh, by the locum told us that, that's correct. Did Joy have to get via past a receptionist to to get to see a doctor? That occasion, that was one occasion where we did get, the receptionist did say, I'll get the, the locum to ring you. He did so that afternoon, but was very dismissive. As Joy had had breast cancer, I know that her mammogram had been clear, but Surely a red flag should be flying when someone's got these, you know, someone who has been a cancer sufferer has these, you know, quite dramatic pain. Absolutely right. I mean, one of the things I've spoken subsequently to a different partner of the practice and made the point very clearly that surely a reception staff should be able to access the information that shows that, in our case, Joy had had cancer in the past and therefore that should be, as you say, a red flag, which should require, mean that she should be seen by a GP. Um, And he accepted that was the case and said that it should have happened that way, but clearly hadn't. Have did you enjoy have a sort of growing sense that things were getting quite urgent? I mean, obviously her mobility was. You know, you said she was a keen golfer. She'd been. We'll talk a bit, a bit about her later on. But she was a very fit woman. Was she getting incredibly anxious? Was she was she too modest to to insist? Do you think? She was getting increasingly worried and frightened as to what was happening because. She felt so tired and and fatigued all the time that she all she really wanted to do was just lie down and sleep, uh, and that was completely unnatural. She also, I mean, obviously, when she was in hospital the first time, which was for three weeks, she had to have a major operation on her hip and femur because the cancer, which had come from the uh, was secondary breast cancer from the same breast as she'd had cancer in in two thousand and six, that had spread to the bones, and they orthopedic operation took place to try and repair the damage or put in some strengthening into the bones so they didn't fracture but of course having had that operation she then had to rest after it for a couple of weeks before any other treatment could happen so that also delayed the onset of of cancer treatment until that uh, operate she'd recover from the operation 
Were you were you angry, Nick? Was she was Joy angry? How did you, or, were, or was it all happening too quickly for you to to react like that? She was she was always a fighter. She'd always battled through everything in her life and always come out the other end smiling. She was always a very positive person. So we were trying to be positive. We were trying to, you know, say to each other, we can get through this thing. We'll support each other. We'll help each other. We'll get through it. Um, so we tried not to think of the negative, but clearly especially when you're lying in hospital um, and there's no visitors and, you know, you're feeling lousy so you don't want to bother to read or do anything like that, inevitably the brain will wander into the worst scenarios and clearly she got more and more frightened as as she did realise she just wasn't getting any better and, in fact, was getting worse. I, I know that because of the COVID restrictions that the hospital visiting, you know, became very hard. I mean, you were able to, to, to get in to spend some time with her in the garden, I believe. That was once, and that was only because I persuaded one of the doctors to get the, the ward to agree to that being done. And it was literally a week before she died. Uh, and I'm very relieved that that did happen, because otherwise I wouldn't have had any sensible conversation with her in the last days, because she then, soon after that, she became semi-conscious and really wasn't communicating anymore. But even getting permission to do that was, was quote-unquote, breaking the rules. What was the last thing she said to you on that? final coherent conversation can you remember the last thing she really said was please don't leave me here i'm frightened you know please don't leave me and obviously i had to leave her so you know i kissed and cuddled her and and then left and never dreaming that that would be really the last conversation we had you mentioned in an email nick that that the the gp when he finally agreed to see joy um told you that he was shocked by the deterioration in her appearance. That's right. Um, yes, and the, the, the senior GP said that to me, to which my response was, well, you should have seen her earlier then, wasn't it? Your, your son Craig sent me some lovely photos of, 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 of you and Joy because um, we need one for a Planet Normal guest and I sort of feel that you, Nick is a Planet Normal guest this week and Joy is also our Planet Normal guest. Um, she was beautiful, Nick. She was absolutely beautiful. And and you know, you told me that Joy was incredibly fit. You actually first met in Oxford where she was training as a as a PE teacher. She was actually a county javelin champion, although she was tiny. What what what, what was she like and what, what drew you to her? Well, uh, firstly, she was incredibly attractive as a, uh, that age. Uh, absolute beauty. Uh, I mean, I remember the first time that we went out together, she had um, purple hot pants, velvet <laughs> hot pants on. Wow. With high boots and a purple streak in her hair, long hair. She looked absolutely stunning. And we went into a local pub and I think the uh, the, old, the locals in the pub's eyes went way out on stalks. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I was absolutely smitten with her from the first day I saw her. She was always somebody who was full of life, full of vitality, always operated 100 miles an hour. All her friends would say she exhausted us because she's always doing so many things and getting on with life. And she was always somebody who thought of others before herself. You said that it was very hard to get down to the 30 people permitted under the COVID rules for the funeral, that, that must have been hard. I mean, we tried to organise as much opportunity for people to pay their respects, and, and um, both at the golf club and then along the, in the village, there must have been probably up to 200 people 
that had turned out on the day just to just to stand at the pavement side which which was just an indication of how popular and she was nick the the first time you wrote to pan at normal ironically was was back in the autumn and it was before you knew how ill joy was and you were writing to us as the former chair of a major nhs trust and you told liam and i that you felt it was totally unnecessary for the national health service to have become a national covid service basically treating all other illnesses as uh, as not as important as the virus can you remind listeners about what what motivated you to write to us Yes, I mean, it was at the time when uh, you were getting information from George um, about what the real figures were. And we were being told by the media that the NHS was being swamped and it was all falling down. And of course, those of us who'd worked in the NHS over the years would know that every winter um, the flu season happens. And lo and behold, the, the NHS struggles to cope and every year I was involved with the hospital I was at, there would have been pictures in the media of ambulances sitting outside A&E departments, A&E departments with people on, on in corridors and, and so on. That happens every year uh, because every year there are something in the order of twelve to 15,000 deaths from flu. What should the NHS have done in terms of dealing with COVID, do you think? They should have organised it in such a way that the COVID patients did not prevent the normal patients from having the normal treatment that should occur just as a matter of normal practice. And particularly those with cancer, uh, heart conditions, dementia and so on. But of course, the only way they could have done that appropriately was to have had COVID patients in one hospital and non-COVID patients in a completely separate hospital. And that never happened Uh, They built new hospitals or temporary ones, but they never actually filled them. Nick, your career was in was in marketing, just to let listeners know. And in 2003, you became a non-exec director of a major NHS trust in the Midlands, eventually becoming the chairman. How would you honestly describe the NHS as an organisation? Excessively bureaucratic um, to the point that uh, what the, the, the... what you are required to do in a hospital is provide excessive amounts of information about your performance, much of which doesn't appear to have any great value or any real justification. You use the word monolithic to me. Now, I think we should say, in all fairness, that there are some absolutely terrific frontline staff, aren't there? But squatting on them is this vast over-managerial culture. Is, is that fair comment? Absolutely. Uh, the hospital that, that Joy finished up with, I couldn't fault the quality of the service being provided by the doctors and the nurses, as I would put it on the front line. Uh, you know, the oncology team were, were exceptionally high standard. They great deal of care from all of their team, the nurses and the support staff. You, you couldn't fault the quality of what you got. By the time she, they finally agreed that she could have the x-ray and then they rushed her into hospital. But she was strong, Nick, but she was already too too weak, wasn't she, to undergo the, 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 the heavy-duty cancer treatment? That's right. That's right. I mean, essentially in the last three months, she she was always tired, always fatigued. 
Um, she, I mean, there was one stage where we managed to do a couple of walks, but then she found that extremely tiring, but she coped with him because she felt that was going to make her better. But after that, when the calcium level went back up again, from that point on, and we were told it had gone to the brain, clearly, you know, she was never going to be in a state that was going to be able to cope with the treatment she needed to have, even though they identified what it would be. Um, it was you know, it was a case that she never got well enough to be able to be able to start that treatment. Um, so, and that was simply because the, the the cancer had spread so widely and was clearly very aggressive. Joy told you she didn't want to make a formal complaint, didn't she? We, we stayed with the same practice, but we asked for a different doctor, a different partner, uh, and and he's been much more supportive. Um, and the first time he came and visited, Joy was in sort of in the recovering from the first set of operations um, and was reasonably compassmentous. And he he said, look, you know, I've listened to what's happened. You clearly, we failed you. Do you want to take action or do anything against the trust, against the, the surgery? And Joy said, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't think that's going to be very helpful to anybody. But what I do want is for you to in, uh, tell me that you've introduced some systems that will prevent this happening again, such as we talked about it earlier, such as I was somebody with cancer, that should have been a red flag. Um, and he accepted that and said that's what we will be making sure happens in future. We have had a number of you know very disturbing emails from uh, listeners and readers, you know, I had one, an email from a, a, a man this morning saying that, you know, he had a difficulty with his foot and, you know, was rebuffed by the receptionist. You know, the GP didn't want to see him, didn't want to see him. Eventually, he said the foot started turning black, at, at which point they finally agreed that, to see him. And he's actually had to have his leg amp- amputated below the knee. Um, I mean, these are like, it's like sort of, black comedy tragedy isn't it nick well exactly i mean you you used to the ones i've seen as well where we've got situations like surgery saying oh you need a blood test uh, you can go and buy the piece of kit from amazon they're 40 quid i mean it, to me that's a total dereliction of duty of of care the, the, the you know the whole point of surely of the nhs is it you know we were told weren't we at the beginning we need to protect the nhs well, that to me is completely the wrong way around. The NHS is there to protect us. It's not there to protect itself. And um, we seem to have got to a situation that it's only worried about protecting itself and not think not protecting its patients that it's there to serve. Uh, because we're, you know, it, that's what it's here for. It's the, to serve the patients. How can you serve a patient when you tell them to go and do their own blood test? You you mentioned to me that a, a friend of yours had been in touch since the Telegraph article appeared, saying that something very similar had happened to his wife. An old friend I hadn't seen for years rang me because he read your article and obviously recognised my name, rang me in tears. And we had a very emotional half an hour because um, he was recounting the story of his own wife who had heart problems and they, the doctors and the hospital focused on the heart issues and totally missed the fact that she'd actually got lung cancer, which killed her. Oh, goodness. Nick, you had me in tears when when we spoke before earlier yesterday. You, you told me that your golden retriever is still looking for her mum 
around the house. I mean, Joy's funeral was only, you know, really only a matter of days, weeks ago. She was 69 when she died. You sound, if I may say so, you sound remarkably together. Are you still in shock, Nick? I think because we had a spell of time when I was on my own while she was in hospital, I think psychologically I'm still sort of feeling that she's in hospital and will come back one day, and knowing full well that when I go to the grave that's not the case. But I, I'm still struggling to come to terms with the fact she's not going to appear in the room any minute. Um, but secondly, what I'm trying to do and, and doing this is one of my ways of dealing with what's happened is to occupy myself as much as possible with other things, particularly things that, that I feel I can be doing on for Joy's, on Joy's behalf that she would have been pleased I, did, I was doing in the same way as my son and daughter are delighted with doing this. Uh, it's keeping me occupied, keeping me sane and, and get, stopping me focusing on, on the empty house. Nick Stokes, thank you very much for talking to us today and um, God bless Joy. Gosh, Alison, that's an astonishingly moving interview from a very sane and loving man who's clearly trying to come to terms with the tragic loss of his wife. And it's a loss that, in his view, and he's the former chairman of an NHS trust, that could have been avoided had she been seen by a GP. I was delighted that George got an honorary mention, reflecting your reporting from week to week of data from Planet Normal's source within NHS England, data that doesn't always get into the public domain. And I wanted to make clear that we both feel, don't we, that lots and lots of our GPs are doing a stellar job. We're grateful to them. They can be very, very proud of their work during this ghastly pandemic. But what we're doing here and what you're doing particularly this week on Planet Normal and in your Telegraph column where you write about Nick and we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. What we're doing is we're responding honestly to the countless emails we've received here at Planet Normal, telling of ordinary people, even you know people who are former chairs of NHS Trust, seriously connected people, not that that should matter. They simply can't get to see a GP face-to-face. They're deeply concerned that the NHS more broadly has been overly focused on COVID and they're warning us that the current state of play is costing lives. That's right, Liam. And I think what Nick wants to do on Joy's behalf is make a fuss, you know, what's going on. So what I've been trying to do, it's unbelievably hard to find out what's going on. Where are these instructions to just do telemedicine, what a terrible word that is, telemedicine, digital triage, e-consult. You know, people are telling me they're filling in one of these e-consult forms, but there are only a limited number of categories. So you say, choose a body part, my eye. You can't say my eye's got a giant cyst on it. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I think you said to me, didn't you, that you get better service when your car's been scratched. So what I'm trying to do, Liam, is 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 looking at what is going on in this system. So this is what I've deduced in a speech on the on the lessons that the NHS can learn from the pandemic. The Secretary of State for Health Matt Hancock said that all GP appointments should be done remotely in future by default unless a patient needs to be seen in person. And then I was looking at in 2019 
The NHS long-term plan said that in 10 years' time, we expect the model of care to look markedly different. The NHS will offer a digital-first option for most. No. No, no, no. Absolutely we didn't vote for that, did we? But allowing, they said, for longer and richer face-to-face consultations where patients want or need it. But that isn't what's happening. We're having this digital sort of picket, you know, this vast barbed wire fence for normal people to try and get through to see the GP in person. And then just to to finish this point, we have a level of denial, official denial about this scandalous situation. So many listeners will have read the jaw-dropping letter to The Telegraph last week from Dr Nikki Kanani, who's the medical director of primary care at NHS England, who claimed that GP appointments have been available throughout the pandemic. Appointments continue to be conducted in person. Uh, Video consultations allow a clinician to triage a patient to the right service. Furthermore, This is so astonishing to me, Liam. She must know that that is nonsense. She must know. She says the majority of people in a survey reported receiving appropriate care and more people than not said they would be happy with future consultations taking place remotely. Well, it's very strange that none of them are writing to us, isn't it? Yeah, let's see how those questions were worded. So often in a poll, you get the, the result that you want because the polling company will word the questions in order to elicit the right answer. What needs to happen now? I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. But we know nonsense on stilts when we see it. That's what we're (laughs) paid to do. That's how we've made our living. And we're pretty good at it by all accounts. Doctors who are prepared to admit that it is not nearly as good to see someone on Zoom as it is to see them face to face They need to stand up now and put all notions of their own convenience to one side or the ability to do a bit more private work on the side as well as your massive NHS wage and say, this is wrong. The BMA needs to say, this is wrong, the doctor's union. Because an awful lot of very, very sensible people, including an awful lot of medics, are now extremely worried about this move to so-called telemedicine using the COVID pandemic as a justification, if you like, a way of not getting rid, but massively downplaying the very traditional system we've had of sitting somebody in front of a patient, sitting a doctor in front of somebody who's walked in off the street and just knowing by looking at them and eyeballing them up close. It's about the body language. It's about so many different things that you can't do over Zoom, particularly if you're an older person and you find this technology very hard to deal with. There's actually a really quite promising intervention this week by Professor Martin Marshall. He's the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners Council. And Professor Marshall has warned that family doctors must not default to telemedicine in the post-pandemic world, despite government pressure on them to increase virtual consultation. So is this coming from the Department of Health? And and Professor Marshall makes the point we're banging on about, Liam, is that the unintended consequences of this policy should be evaluated. And we know the unintended consequences of most of the lockdown policies haven't been evaluated. And that Professor Marshall says that while some of this remote consultation was useful, 
useful, certainly at the height of the pandemic. It's time to shift back to -to face-to-face appointments, which are far more important than some policymakers might suggest, because it's dangerous. He uses the word dangerous to not see people. You know, when I read that, and I just interviewed Nick Stokes, and I thought, Joy is one of those unintended consequences exactly. of remote consultations. And, you know, I want to say something, Liam, now. I don't want to get on my high horse. You know, you know, I prefer a small <laughs> Welsh pony to a high horse. You don't want to get on your high horse. You're astride a <laughs> giraffe on stilts. I know I am. But listen, bear with me, really, because here we have, this is a bigger point about what kind of society do we want to live in. Everything is contactless now. It's okay to make a contactless payment with your credit card. It's not okay to make a contactless appointment with your doctor. And we've seen bobbies disappear off the beat. We can't get hold of banks. We can't get hold of utilities providers. Your call is important to us. No, it bloody isn't because you don't answer the phone. So essentially, all of these so-called improvements, technological improvements, are not improvements improvements for the human beings who are having to deal with it. When I get an email from an 84-year-old woman telling me she's been told to take a picture of the moles on her back, and when she says, I can't do that, the receptionist at the GP says to her, take a selfie in the mirror to an 84-year-old lady who lives by herself. That is not a general practice service which I voted for at the last election, and I bet you it isn't uh, a GP service that most Conservatives voted for. This public inquiry is coming down the track, Alison. The indications are it won't report for at least two years, but during this public inquiry, the role of GPs has to be looked at. Because I'll tell you where we're heading. I'll tell you where we're heading. We're heading for a system where if you can afford to go private, you get to see the GP, and if you can't afford to go private... Here's a Zoom link if you're lucky. That is a complete dereliction of the founding principles of the NHS. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming in. We've had an absolute avalanche this week, as you can imagine. And here's one on the topic of the moment from Tony, who is a retired surgeon. I qualified in 1968 when young doctors did about 100 hours a week in hospital and understood what service and servitude was about. Even as a consultant surgeon, I was on call in Greenwich alternate nights until I was 55. No days off afterwards, mine, just another day, even if I'd been operating half the night. No complaint. It was the job and we got on with it. Then came the European Working Time Directive, which destroyed the way we taught our young medical students and house officers. The traditional firm system of managing a group of hospital patients changed and effectively the hospitals went into a shift mentality. When your house officer looks at the clock in the operating theatre and says, I am going now, it's five o'clock and my shift is over, despite the patient's belly still being open and the surgery uncompleted, the traditionalist sighs and just gets on with the job. But that clock watcher went on with his, her contemporaries to destroy what used to be a service we were proud of, even with its faults. It was a service despite all. Mr Blair 
may he hang his head in shame, gave GPs the cushiest contract imaginable. No on call for them. So how many real emergency cases did come their way? Of course, most went to A&E. One or two might have been seen by agency call-out locums from overseas moonlighting. No wonder most GP practices have performed poorly. The original attitude was flawed. And the situation is aggravated because so many female GPs are part-time or away on maternity leave. I suspect the situation is irredeemably damaged. Politicians will not save it, especially not Hancock or Witty. Jonathan Van Tam might just talk some sense to power, but he is a scientist, not a clinician, sadly. Yesterday, I managed to get an appointment with a rheumatologist to discuss joints and thighs. I'm quite badly limited in what I can do now. Lovely man, immensely courteous, professional, took a careful history, did a good examination in person. He is from Milan. Grazie mille. This is from Alice. After so much dreadful news and poor reporting, particularly by the BBC, says Alice, it's refreshing to hear intelligent common sense. I can't wait for Thursday mornings. You have a diverse range of guests that open my eyes to the enormous number of sensible people out there, which is so comforting in this curious Twitter-led world where the rest of us feel like aliens. Keep harrowing the powers that caused the disgraceful and inhumane post office tragedy. There's so much injustice out there for us mere mortals who can only look on bewildered as those in power get decorated and promoted after doing appalling jobs at our expense. If those tickets to Planet Normal are ever available, says Alice, please put me down for some. (laughs) I think everyone wants a ticket to Planet Normal. I certainly do. One way ticket to Planet (laughs) Normal. We're not coming back. Here's a review on Apple Podcasts from Fred. Presenters Halligan and Pearson are the Birkin hare of COVID. Hunting propaganda. They're the Victorian grave robbers, right? (laughs) Hunting propaganda to be dissected on their operating table of facts, objectivity and balance. All done in a light-hearted, easy-to-listen format. Pearson is the thinking man's pikelet, with Halligan (laughs) providing occasional rigour as a perfect counterbalance. A wonderful, unmissable weekly journey to a better place. Thanks so much for that, Fred. And if you like Planet Normal, dear listener, do leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to us, as that helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Birkin hair. I thought we were Morecambe and Wise. What's, what's all this Birkin hair? <laughs> I'm the one with the short, fat, hairy legs. You're the one with the glasses. <laughs> and finally, finally, we're going to go out in style, great wit, uh, with, a, with a poem worthy of Alfred Lord Tennyson from Tim. Planet Normal, you've served us well, kept us sane through COVID hell. Velma, Shaggy and guests are plenty to challenge the orthodoxical cognoscenti. Common sense will have its day. These mad woke storms will blow away. The gates of freedom will all reopen and I'll get my mug. I'm always hoping all the best for the next 50 shows. Tim Cruddus. Good one, Tim. To get orthodoxical cognoscenti to scan, I mean, you know, hats off, Tim. Before you ask me, I think we've got to give the Planet Normal mug to Tim, particularly as he's he's asking for his mug in his specially crafted Planet Normal poem. So the highly desirable Planet Normal mug goes to Tim. Well done, Tim. So send us your postal address on email, Tim, and we'll get that mug to you by return. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week. 
be our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the episode description or just go to www.telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bujard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me... And it's goodbye from him.